Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, from time to time you may come across uh, some lists of some strange laws that exist in various parts of the world, laws that don't seem to make an ounce of sense, laws that make you scratch your head and wonder, why in the world would anyone pass that kind of law? For example, here are some strange laws from different parts of the world. I just found these on the internet. Uh, In Spain, apparently it's illegal to make a sandcastle on the beach. In the state of Kansas, it's illegal to serve ice cream on cherry pie. In the state of Michigan, it's illegal to tie an alligator to a fire hydrant. In Poland, it's illegal to wear clothing featuring Winnie the Pooh. Some of those laws just seem completely bizarre. We might wonder, were lawmakers just bored? They need something to do? Is it such a crime to put ice cream on top of cherry pie? Is Winnie the Pooh that dangerous that we need to ban his apparel? Well, perhaps we'll never know. But one thing we do know is this. This can happen with human laws. They seem absolutely pointless and even bizarre. But this will never happen with God's commandments and with God's law. It's never arbitrary. It is never pointless. God gave his law for good reasons. His laws always promote and protect life. They allow life to flourish. God's laws are also never made on a whim, something he just dreamed up, nor did they ever become outdated. Rather, God's law is a reflection of God's perfect righteousness. They are an expression of His holy character. Because this is so, it makes them worthy of our study and of our obedience, also because they come from God Himself. And these things should also cause us to thank God for giving us His good law. So this afternoon, I preach you God's Word under the following theme, By his law, God teaches us about his perfect righteousness. He does this, first of all, to expose the sin of our hearts. Second of all, to teach us to rest in Christ for our righteousness. And third, to move us forward in pursuit of perfection. So first of all, to expose the sin of our hearts. Now, God is the almighty creator of the universe. He is the majestic king over everything and everyone including you. He is also the perfect king. Scripture says that righteousness, doing what is right and good and just, is the foundation of his throne. It's the foundation of his throne, of his rule. And so that means that everything God the king does and will do is right and true and faithful. As king and creator over everything, everything belongs ultimately to him. This includes every single person on earth. And God created our entire person. He created our bodies. He created our hearts, our souls, our minds, and our wills. He created all these things for his glory. Because this is true, it's no wonder then that God's law governs everything about us, every aspect of our person. Yes, this includes 
the deeds we do by acts of our wills, but it also includes the things we desire with our hearts. God made our hearts, and so his law governs those things too. It includes the thoughts we think with our minds. And one place this comes out so clearly is in the 10th commandment. In the 10th commandment, God commands as follows, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is all about what we desire with our hearts. God forbids us from setting our desire on our neighbor's possessions or, or whatever belongs to our neighbor. Now, if you were to examine your thoughts from day to day, you can probably see how easily coveting arises out of your heart. How often do we not want, how often do we not want what we can't have? We desire what doesn't belong to us, to somebody else. And we want for ourselves what rightfully belongs to our neighbor. No sooner do we gain something, but we want something else. What we have, we soon lose interest in. What others have, we desire more and more. And the thing is, if our possessions were exchanged for our neighbor's things, the same desires would probably still arise. That's because the issue isn't really about what we have and what our neighbor has. The issue is we have a sin problem in our hearts. And the catechism expands this as fo- on this as follows. What does the 10th commandment require of us? There the answer is that not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. Notice how that's all-encompassing. You hear that word all throughout that answer. Now, we might wonder about this explanation of the 10th commandment from the catechism. It doesn't mention anything specifically about coveting. And here the catechism, it mentions all of the commandments. Why does it do that? Well, it's because coveting forms the root of so many sins. Coveting your neighbor's possessions or money, it's at the root of stealing. Coveting your neighbor's husband or wife lays the groundwork for adultery and and so on. I think you can see the point. So the 10th commandment, it's all about what we desire, and it's connected to so many other commandments. And this description here in Lord's Day 44, it likewise shows us the standard of God's perfect righteousness. Again, righteousness is the foundation of God's majestic throne, his kingly rule. And what the Catechism says about the Tenth Commandment is certainly true about God. Not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of his commandments, ever arises in his heart. With all his heart, God always hates all sin and delights in all righteousness. That's who God is. This is how he acts, perfectly righteous and holy in every way. Well, there's something that does for us as well. 
It exposes our own unrighteousness, shows how far we have fallen in our rebellion. No, God made us in his very own image in true righteousness and holiness, and so uh, we could reflect his perfection. And he made us in his image for the purpose of ruling righteously on the earth. Righteousness is the foundation of God's throne. It was also meant to be the foundation of our lives as people made in his image. Look at Psalm 101, which we read. The king of Israel speaks of walking the path of blameless living. And in that psalm, he shows a complete devotion to getting rid of sin and living righteously. It's a picture of humans completely restored into the image of God once more. How far we have fallen. Before conversion, we're inclined to hate God and our neighbor. We could even say that through the fall into sin, sin has become the foundation of human hearts and lives. In Genesis 6, God gave this sorry statement about the human condition. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The very opposite of what we read in Lord's Day 44. And lest we think the flood fixed the human condition, listen to what God says in Genesis 8, after the flood. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. How far we have fallen. And even after we are converted to God, we still do not match up with God's perfect righteousness. Listen to how this is worded in question and answer 114. But can those converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. In this life, even the holiest have only a small beginning of this obedience. Nevertheless, with earnest purpose, they do begin to live not only according to some, but to all the commandments of God. See, the catechism is not denying the great change worked in believers' hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not shortchanging the work of the Spirit. But look again at the standard that of perfect righteousness in answer 113. And not even the slightest thought or desire, contrary to any of God's commandments, should ever arise in our hearts. Rather, with all our heart, we should always hate all sin and delight in all righteousness. I don't know about you, but I certainly cannot keep that perfectly. I most definitely have not kept that perfectly. While I have not examined your thoughts and desires, I'm also 100% sure that you can't keep this perfectly either. This is God's perfect righteousness, and it exposes our own sin. That brings us to the second point. Well, given this is our state, even after conversion, it raises another question brought up in question 115. Well, if in this life no one can keep the Ten Commandments perfectly, why does God have them preached so strictly? And that's a good question, isn't it? Maybe you even have points where you think to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm tired of, of hearing the law. I'm trying my best, but I know my best will never be good enough, so please just stop with the commandments. Maybe we have that at time. Maybe you view the law of God sort of like an overly zealous gym teacher 
You know, the kind, type of gym teacher who blasts a whistle at you, calling out, run harder, do more push-ups, put more effort into it. Meanwhile, the gym teacher doesn't do a stitch of exercise himself, but it's always do more, do better, do it faster. Or perhaps that's not even, uh, maybe that's a bit even too soft. Maybe you view God's law like a military drill sergeant, kind that's constantly barking in your face, constantly telling you it's not good enough and you're not good enough. And when we view the law like that, when it's like that in your mind, there will not be any rest or peace of conscience in our hearts. Before too long, you may throw up your hands and say, okay, I get it already. I know I'm a sinner. I don't want to keep being reminded of that over and over. But you know what? In some ways, coming to that point is a good thing. Now, I want to be careful here because there's some sense in which it can be a bad thing too. But it is a good thing, that is, if it leads us to rest in the saving work of Jesus Christ. See, this is one reason why God has given us the law. To make us see that we can't do it ourselves. That we can't live up to the standard of His perfect righteousness. And if you try to live up to it, to gain a righteous standing before God, it will do one of two things. It can lead, first of all, to self-delusion. We might think that we can do it or that we have done it. But that would be a disaster. Think of what we read in Galatians 3. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And doing all the works of the law means always, with all our heart, hating all sin and delighting in all righteousness. And so, cursed be the one who does not do that. If we rely on our own righteousness, we're not going to make it. The thing is, there's always something in our hearts that says, I can do it, I can measure up. I can keep the law in order to attain life. I can come to God relying on my own works. But that is self-deception. Going this route will only leave us under God's punishment. So that's the first thing trying to live up to the law to gain a righteous standing before God may produce. The second is, is this. It may produce a whole lot of frustration and unrest. And without Christ, we would live without any rest and peace in ourselves. But God, by His law, exposes our sins and our sinful condition so that we might come to Christ and find rest in Him. And this happens as we find our righteousness in the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen again to Galatians 3. In that chapter, it contrasts two ways of seeking a righteous standing before God. The first way is the righteousness that is by the law. And this path says the one who does the commandments will live by them. But then Galatians 3 contrasts that with the righteousness, righteousness that is by faith. And 
It's described as follows, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or the one who is righteous by faith will live. So on the one hand, there's a path of the one who does the commandments will live by them. The other path, the one who is righteous by faith will live. That is the way that we find a righteous standing before God. One reason God gave the law was so that we would seek this path, the way of faith in Christ. As it says further in Galatians 3, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But guess what? The law could not give us life. And that's not the fault of the law. It's the fault of our own sinful hearts. But this also means we need righteousness before God another way. The only way we can gain it is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why does God have His commandments preached so strictly? Answer 115 of Lord's Day 44 puts it like this. First, so that throughout our life, we may more and more become aware of our sinful nature, and therefore, seek more eagerly the forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. This righteousness that we need is found in one person, in Christ alone. This was prophesied about in the Old Testament already. Think of what the Lord proclaimed through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. See how in that prophecy the, the Lord sets a king before our eyes, who would be our righteousness. Remember, righteousness is the foundation of God's throne. We could never live up to that standard, but God gave us a king who could live up to his standard. And that's Christ our king. Christ came into this world conceived and born without our fallen nature. He could perfectly reflect God's uh, royal image. Righteousness was always the foundation of his life. Not once did he covet his neighbor's possessions. And even when the devil tempted him in the wilderness, uh, at one point the devil showed Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, and he said, all these I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. And essentially, the, the devil was saying, you can be king over all these things, I'll give them to you. All you have to do is bow down to me. Easy, right? But Christ our king did not covet what God had not yet given him. And there's no way the Lord Jesus would ever worship Satan in order to gain a royal throne. Because he knew he would never do it. He would never gain the throne that way. Instead, he kept the path of obedience perfectly. He always hated all sin. He always delighted in all righteousness. You know that description of the 10th commandment in Lord's Day 44? That describes our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it's by faith in Him we share in His righteous status. Remember that prophecy from Jeremiah 23, God raised up a righteous branch from David's line. He would do what is right, and this is the name by which He will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. It's in Him that we can come before God. That brings us to our last point. So, God has given the law so that we might rest not in our own performance, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's in Christ alone that we gain this righteous standing. But all this is not meant to make us, although we are to rest in Christ, this is not meant to make us rest in our sin. In fact, it's really quite the opposite. It's this resting in Christ, finding our righteousness before God in Christ, that allows us to work towards perfection in our own lives. It's the peace we have with God in Christ that starts a war in our hearts and in our lives against sin. So we have peace with God, and it starts a war against sin in our lives. And so the Christian life is one of resting and working. We rest in the finished work of Christ for eternal life and salvation. But we work towards perfection by pursuing obedience. And it must be stressed that this work, this striving, it springs from the rest that we have in Christ. You see, the gospel of Christ, the good news of salvation, is the gasoline that drives our own obedience to the law. You see, there are various things that the law can do and cannot do. Here are some of the things it can do. The law teaches us what sin is. The law shows us a path of obedience to follow. The law reveals God's perfect righteousness and His holy character. But here are some things the law cannot do. The law cannot give us the power to obey it. The law cannot give us the desire to obey it. The law cannot make unspiritually a dent people into people who are spiritually alive to God. For these things, we need Jesus Christ, and we need, we need divine power from God. That's why we also have the second half of answer 115. Why does God have the commandments preached so strictly? The second thing is this. So that while praying to God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, we may never stop striving to be renewed more and more after God's image, until after this life we reach the goal of perfection. We need the grace of the Holy Spirit to obey God's law more and more. And He does give us His grace. You know, earlier on, we saw how some people might view the law as an overly zealous gym teacher, the kind of gym teacher that blasts a whistle in your ear yelling at you, run faster, work harder, do more push-ups. The Holy Spirit is much different. To work with a similar analogy, the Holy Spirit would be something more like a personal trainer. A personal trainer is someone who comes alongside you 
They encourage you to keep pushing yourself, but they're not there to discourage you or to put you down. A personal trainer also shows you the right way to exercise so that you can improve your fitness and reach your goals faster. Without that trainer, the likelihood of reaching your maximum potential is severely hampered. But working with him regularly can help immensely. You're not working at it all by yourself. Someone to help you, someone to show you the way, someone to encourage you. And the Holy Spirit is kind of like that. Scripture calls him the paraclete, sometimes translated as the counselor or the helper. Someone who comes to another person's aid. Someone who advocates for someone else. That is the Holy Spirit for us. He is our helper. And it's through His energizing work that we can obey the law more and more. It's by His power that we pursue perfection in this life, even if we won't reach that goal until we come to the next life. Because this is true, let us pray for His ongoing work in our hearts and His constant help every day to pursue obedience. Pray for the grace of the Holy Spirit. Pray that God would work in you powerfully by the Spirit. Pray that He would encourage you to obey the law more and more, that you would learn to love God's law with all of your heart. Pray that He would energize you to pursue perfection. Pray that He would convict you of the remaining sin in your life and lead you to true repentance. Pray that He would cleanse your heart and your life from every single evil desire, every evil thought, every evil action and word. Pray that He would give you new desires that are in line with God's perfect righteousness. You can ask Him to help you overcome sin in general. A good thing is also to identify specific sins with which you struggle. Ask Him to so work in you that you put those sins to death forever. As you pray for this work of the Spirit in your heart and life, And indeed, start striving. Start pursuing perfection with complete determination. Think again of Psalm 101, how David ponders the path of blameless living. And maybe that doesn't describe our lives right now, but we can grow in that more and more. This includes identifying sin in your life, aiming to get rid of it. It includes understanding what pleases God and putting that into practice more and more. And always remember, we do all this in light of the gospel of Christ. Christ has given us a righteous standing before God. In that, we have peace with God and eternal life. But because of that, we will also strive to become like our Savior until we perfectly reflect His righteous image. Amen. Let's now sing together from Psalm 40. We will sing stanzas 3, 5, and 7.